Well, having said all of that, you can open your Bibles with me. We'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And as you turn your scriptures to there, um, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And you can grab that and turn with me to page 986, and you'll find yourself in the text with us this morning. Now, the Holy Spirit is amazing because as I've framed this message with some rather hard news, uh, this message in the passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 actually runs parallel with maybe the feelings that many of you are having, having heard that news about Jack. Think about this with me for a moment. If you thought about all the romantic love songs that were ever written, the poems, uh, the essays, how high of a stack could you create if you just printed them all out on paper and started stacking them up? I think pretty high. Would it go as high as the Willis Tower? Maybe as high as Mount Everest. Imagine if you added some of the other works that have been written on other virtues like sacrifice and patriotism and, and family. It would just get immense. In fact, we're bombarded by these messages every single day. But you don't hear a lot about people applauding pain, hard times, or suffering. I suspect that if we were to compile all of the works that were ever written in that regard, we probably would have a hard time filling up a binder. Author Philip Yancey has said, I have never read a poem extolling the virtues of pain, nor seen a statue erected in its honor, nor heard a hymn dedicated to it. Pain is usually defined as unpleasantness. Christians don't really know how to interpret pain. If you pen them against the wall in a dark, secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was one of God's mistakes. He really should have worked a little harder and invented a better way of coping with the world's dangers. What do you do when your world caves in? How should a Christian respond when hard times come, what can we do to stay strong in our faith? And these are questions that Christians have been asking for centuries, if not millennium. Pain has always been a part of the human experience. And so as we look in our letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is going to address this issue. And in this third chapter, he frames the conversation uh, in this way. You'll notice certain aspects of the language. First, he talks about the concern for this young church that is being persecuted. The concern is those two words, that phrase, your faith. And he repeats that five times, verse two, verse five, verse six, verse seven, verse 10. He talks about the objective that he is seeking to aim for, which is that they would stand firm in the Lord. In fact, verse 8 could be the key verse. And then the means, and it bookends, verse 2, verse 13, this chapter, to establish or to strengthen your faith. This is what Paul is concerned with. How does this church make it? when they're going through such significant difficulty, such hard times. And it should be a great concern for us too. Because we need to know how we can make it when hard times come. And so in this passage, Paul will explain certain factors that contribute to Christians remaining strong during hard times. And the first thing that he will address is in the first five verses, what to remember when life gets hard. 
Now, as we make our way through, you'll notice that he is recounting certain events, but embedded within these events are the principles that I will derive. So the first thing that we need to remember when hard times come is found in verses one through three, that they will indeed come. We'll all face them. Listen to what he says. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Why? Verse three, the first part, that no one be moved by these afflictions. So no sooner had this church heard the life-saving, life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ than it seemed like the bottom had fallen out on them. Remember, three Sabbaths. If you uh, took my advice on Super Bowl Sunday, and while you were making your buffalo dip, you went home and read Acts chapter 17, you would notice that all of the parties involved in that chapter suffered in certain ways. Timothy, Silas, Paul, the Thessalonian believers. They had experienced persecution for following Jesus Christ. And here in this verse, Paul uses two words to describe the nature of the situation. First, he uses the word moved. This carries the idea of being so emotionally disturbed that you might actually walk away from your faith. And then he uses the word afflictions, which describes those circumstances that might cause one to do so. So in the context for the Thessalonians, it was for following Jesus Christ. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says that this persecution came from their own countrymen. Now, the idea here is that persecution often comes from those who are closest to us. And that's why it hurts so bad. You can be persecuted by family members who say that they love you. Friends, neighbors, co-workers. Oftentimes when persecution hits, it hits so close to home that it will li- literally knock you off your feet. But in addition to this, the hard times that we experience are other things like terminal illness, loss of a job. I've heard of people who actually had someone break into their home and robbed them can be something very close, like the death of a loved one. Students, you go through persecution regularly when you are ridiculed for following the Lord Jesus Christ in your schools. Regardless of what it is, it hurts. It's difficult. No one says it's easy, and indeed, it will come. Now, let's be perfectly honest for a moment. When we endure these trials, when we go through these hard times that rock us, that knock us off of our feet, we can be easily disturbed by questions that shake our faith. Questions such as, does God care about me anymore? Didn't he promise to never leave me or forsake me? How can a good, powerful God let this happen? If God can stop this, why doesn't he? And right now, and also that question that really hits close to home is, am I in some way to blame for this? If you have felt like the bottom has dropped out from your life, and if you've been struck by those questions, I think the first thing that you need to hear is very simple. That happens to almost all of us. 
almost all of us, when we are rocked, ask certain questions like that. But the big point that matters in all of our trials, whether the trials hit us, whether we have the questions that come, is this, how do you respond to them? Do your trials drive you away from God or do they drive you into God's word to be comforted, to know him more fully, to be reassured that he would indeed never leave you, never forsake you? How do you respond? Trials often come with very little warning. Think of an interview that I'd heard about between Pastor Ray Pritchard and Nabil Qureshi on the program American Family Radio. Crushy was on the radio program talking about his new book, No God But One, Allah or Jesus. And Pritchard, as he recounts the interview, uh, thinks of Nabil's testimony. Nabil was raised in a Muslim context. He became a Christian after reading the New Testament and encountering the claims of Christ. And in fact, he's written a book, a bestseller, about that conversion story, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. So for the last few years, he's been used mightily by God in um, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, defending the faith, proclaiming Christ in this context. Pritchard recalls this weird dichotomy because on one end, he was talking with Qureshi on this program and he sounded confident and strong and firm in the faith. And just five days later, Qureshi would be announcing on Facebook that he was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer and the prognosis is grim. This is how life is sometimes. Sometimes you're in one moment announcing how excited you are that you're releasing that new book. And in the next, you're literally fighting for your life. Now, James says something that's very odd, doesn't he? James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, count it all joy. Why would he say that? Why would James tell you and I to be happy when trials come? In fact, you would think that it would be quite the opposite from that. Well, one of the things that we can understand is that we won't find this joy that James is talking about if we keep our gaze and our attention focused purely on the problem. Do you remember what the first priority of the Christian is? The ultimate priority? Worship. And if worship is the ultimate priority, then we know that in any circumstance that we face, we will only be strengthened by how we fix our gaze or our attention upon God. Now as he moves forward, Paul, he tells us something else we need to remember about our trials. That trials are Appointed. Look at the second part of verse 3. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. So Paul is reassuring these Christians, and by extension us and God's word, that trials, afflictions, suffering, persecution, all of these things that we experience are not arbitrary accidents. They're not blind acts of fate. They're not karma. The phrase that he uses, we are destined, is a strong way of saying that these hard times are placed here by God. Roy Zuck has said, for the child of God, there are no accidents 
only incidents. Did you get that? No accidents. Incidents, yes. Troubles, yes. Heartaches, yes. Difficulties, yes. Disappointments, sure. Loss, it will happen. Failure, of course. But accidents, absolutely zero. I'm reminded of a point that I made some time ago. There's this comfort in knowing that every difficulty or pain or struggle that we face must always pass through the hand of God before it gets to us. And God knows each one of us so intricately, so well, because he made us. And indeed, if it must pass through his hand, he also knows the right amount of a portion of that trial or suffering or pain that each one of us can handle. And he also knows what the result will be when we've gone through that experience. And that's where we're headed next, you see, because trials are not just appointed, they're necessary. If you look at verse four, he says, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Now why again does God do this? Well, that phrase repeated five times is so important to God, your faith. God is very concerned about your faith. He has a plan for your life. And that plan for your life is that you would be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now here's the big point of this passage, and I don't want you to miss this. Hard times are an essential part of God's plan for growing you to look like Jesus. This is one of the primary tools that the master craftsman uses to make you into that beautiful masterpiece that he has intended you to be. So if we didn't experience these things, then we would never grow into the men and women that God wants us to be. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't wanna go through those hard times. Can't God just simply make me mature? Can't he just get me there without me having to walk down this road? No. That's not his plan. Romans 5, 3-4, Paul explains what God does in us when we experience higher times. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There it is again, isn't that odd? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope is a beautiful thing, isn't it? We all want hope. Let's just be honest for a moment. None of us want suffering. But notice that the road to hope involves suffering. Let me return to Nabil Qureshi's story for just a moment. He posted on Facebook this announcement when he was talking about his cancer. He said, in the past few days, my spirits have soared and sank as I pursue the Lord's will and consider what the future might look like. But never once have I doubted this, 
that Jesus is Lord. His blood has paid my ransom and by his wounds I am healed. I have firm faith that my soul is saved by grace and mercy of the triune God and not by any accomplishment or merit of my own. I am so thankful that I am a child of the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. No, in the midst of the storm, I do not have to worry about my salvation, for I praise you, God. In this case, Qureshi has let the suffering take its full course, and suffering has brought him to hope. And the hope that he is expressing here will never let him down. It's guaranteed 110% that he will stand before his Savior one day in glory and rejoice. Now, as we move forward, we know that we're not just living in this world unopposed, are we? You see, trials aren't just appointed, they're not just necessary but they're also dangerous, and we'll see why in verse five. He says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Back in World War II, there was a saying that would go around to remind everyone about the nature of the day. There's a war on. And they would express or use this expression to remind everyone that you needed to stand at the ready. You needed to be willing to sacrifice. Because wartime's no time to hoard. Wartime's no time to demand my own way. During that time, everything is about contributing to the greater good. And uh, they certainly had posters and reminders all over the place so that people understood that message. Everyone needed to work together because there was an enemy that was set upon destroying nations and wanted to bring a dark philosophy upon the world. And I think we can learn something from this slogan because as long as we live in this fallen, sinful, demon-filled world, we are in enemy territory. There is a war on. And if the enemy is allowed to gain the foothold that he can, he will. And this enemy is not interested in any prisoners. Now, why would Paul talk about this in the context of suffering and pain and hardship? Well, I think that it has something to do with the fact that the enemy likes to attack Christians while they're down. He knows that he can't take away your salvation, but he, does know, he also knows, though, that he can make you very ineffective in your Christian life, and he will attack. So how does he do this? Well, there's a couple of ways that you see as you synthesize the scriptures on how the enemy likes to attack us. One way that he does is he attacks the chinks in your armor. Every Christian, I don't care who you are, lives with some sinful tendency that we seem to struggle getting over or past. We've fought it. We've prayed about it. We've brought it before God. We've confessed it. And we've come back to it. This is the chink in your armor. The enemy knows it. 
and he likes to use it against you. Notice that the enemy, if you read the scriptures, is the attempter and the accuser. So on one part of the conversation, he's whispering in your ear, it's no big deal. Go ahead and give in to that just one more time. And you cave. And in the next moment, what's he do? He's accusing you. He's yelling in your ear, how could you have done that? God can't possibly forgive you for doing that. I'm going to run and I'm going to tell him. And he knocks us off our feet. Secondly, we see that he attacks our blind spots. If you've read 2 Corinthians 11.14, Paul talks about Satan being disguised or masquerading as an angel of light. So he comes to us, he presents this good front, and he makes sin look as if it is harmless, as if it will do nothing to level you. It's actually a clear picture of what he did in the book of Genesis chapter three. Don't you know that if you eat this fruit, you will be like God? God's just simply withholding. He doesn't want you to have his best. And who of us hasn't heard that whisper from time to time that in some way God's withholding from us, that he doesn't want us to have his best, that he uh, wants us to be joyless in this world and not to pursue happiness? He's attacking our blind spot. He's trying to deceive and to tempt us. Well, the third thing we'll see here is that if he can't find the chink in the armor and if he can't subdue you from behind, then he is going to attack you head on. You see, this enemy knows that you're vulnerable during hard times. I don't care who you are. I don't care how mature you are in Christ, how many years you've been walking with Christ. You are susceptible to this enemy. He will tempt you with all kinds of thoughts. And how does he typically do this? Well, he might whisper into your ear that God is not good. And he will tell you all the reasons that, or all the things that God should have done with this situation, all the ways God could have acted in this situation. But here's the thing with the enemy. He doesn't care about you. He could care less about you. In fact, he hates you. So of course he's going to lie those things into your ear. Another thing, he tempts us to retaliate. Who of us who have been through a hard time like persecution haven't had thoughts occur to us like, oh, I could just say this and this would just level that person. And thereby doing so, we diminish our Christian testimony and make ourselves ineffective for the Lord wherever we are. He also tempts us to fall into despair. You really aren't that strong of a Christian at all because if you had more faith, then this would have happened. Can I just go off on that for a moment? Are you absolutely kidding me? More faith? More faith, and you won't experience pain. Jesus goes to the cross. Stephen's stoned to death. Paul's beheaded. Peter is crucified upside down. Are you telling me that my grandma, who walked with Christ faithfully her entire life and died too young of dementia, didn't have enough faith? Who are you kidding? That is absolute garbage from the enemy. Don't ever believe that lie. They had more faith because they endured the hard times. 
And this is just where Paul heads next in the passage. See, he talks about in verses six through eight, and we're gonna actually end with these verses, how we can endure when hard times come. You see, the Thessalonians had a couple of options when it came to this affliction that they were facing. They could have responded in any number of ways. They could have grown angry with God. They could have isolated themselves from Christian fellowship. They could have turned cold towards the biblical truth and indifferent to the biblical teaching, but they don't. Look at verses six and seven. Paul talks about the ways they responded. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reasons, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. You see, one of the ways that we endure hard times is we endure in faith. Now, the word that he uses, their good news, is actually elsewhere in the New Testament only ever used of the gospel. This message of hope, this glad tiding that these Christians had stood strong was so overwhelmingly joyful for Paul that it was like as if Timothy was expressing the gospel message. Paul was overjoyed. How did they make it? They chose to live by faith. Now there's that word again, isn't it? Faith. Only Paul's theology is much, much more robust than Satan's. How do we grow in faith? We come to know God through his word. We come to know about his character, his purposes, his promises, his presence, his power. I think of Romans 10, 17, where Paul talks about this faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I think oftentimes when we're studying the scriptures, we're doing two things at the same time. One, we're receiving a word for the day, but we're also uh, putting money into a bank account that we're cashing away for those hard times. You will be grounded with the truth. You will be resourced when you are hit by that day that you didn't anticipate, that you didn't expect to come. I was thinking about that with my dear sister Margot. I mean, she has absolutely floored me in this entire process. As she has stood alongside of her husband. Oftentimes you think as the pastor... <laughs> that you're the one coming alongside of someone extending comfort and care to them, that you're the one that's going to be providing the counsel. But nope, it hasn't been the case. Margot is a reservoir of biblical truth. She has been depositing this truth into her account over the years, and as she has been enduring this hardship, she knows that God is walking alongside of her. She knows that Jack is in the arms of Jesus Christ right now. She is quoting verse after verse. She is clinging on to promise after promise. She knows how to live faithfully while she is waiting for Jesus to return. This is the more robust faith that Paul's talking about. He's not saying that you can believe things away. 
He's saying that your faith will act like a, a ballast or a strong footing that will uphold you when the evil day comes. Notice another principle that we see from this passage. We endure by loving one another. I think you, as you read this letter to the Thessalonians, become overwhelmed by the sense that Paul and Timothy and Silas and the Thessalonians are all in this together. You see in verses 1 through 3, you might have noticed that I skipped over the portion where Paul had sent Timothy to exhort them and establish them in their faith. Uh, This is that ministry of presence that we talked about not so long ago, wasn't it? That ministry where you look at someone eyeball to eyeball, where you're physically there as they are suffering. That ministry where you come alongside of someone and offer them the truths of the scripture in an appropriate way, the ministry where you're comfortable just sitting there and being silent as you hear them tell you about the grief and the pain that they're suffering, that ministry where you come alongside and you pray with them and and for them even while you are away. That's the ministry of presence and that's what Timothy does for this church and they're strengthened because of it. We also notice that the Thessalonians are showing love in addition to faith. That's found in verse 6. Real love can't be manufactured, can it? Real love is something that can only be shown. It's demonstrable. I, I can say I love you to someone all that I want, but they will only believe that message as I show it to them. And here they are in verse 6 showing their love. Timothy reported that you always remember us kindly, that you long to see us as we long to see you. This is a mutual love that has been built up between the two. You cannot fake that. I think of the powerful testimony that love is to the world. Um, As we were at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital in Boston, several of the, the support staff at the hospital made statements about this little local church called Osterville Baptist Church and how they were overwhelmed, how they were floored that this church would come around these people in this way. It's love. Margot and her sister Michelle in the same way um, have been demonstrating boldness and love and courage for the Lord Jesus Christ to the degree that the doctor on his team, Jack's team, came to them and said, there's something deep about your faith. God is using the loving care of this church to bring glory to his son, Jesus Christ. Love in action is one of the most powerful ways that we can witness for that glory. I've just got to say something about church membership. This is absolutely why church membership is so important. Absolutely. Church membership is a commitment to one another. You commit to a person doctrinally. You commit to the church financially. You commit to be an agent of that ministry of presence. You commit to seeing the church grow as you use your gifts and your skills for the glory of God. Now, I understand that we live in a day and age where that word commitment is kind of a dirty word. 
But I'll tell you, when you see the real thing, when you see people actually committing their lives together, being there for one another, demonstrating the virtue of love, boy, I think that our members' meetings would probably go on for hours because we would be voting in so many people if they understood what commitment really is. It's huge. Finally, the principle we endure by standing our ground. He says in verse eight, the key verse, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. From another translation, the new living. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. This church is hit from all sides. And Paul you actually read the concern in the letter was anticipating that after this bombardment from the enemy, when the dust would settle, he had expected to see Christian casualties all over the place. People who had left their faith, who had walked away from the Lord. But when the dust settles, what does he see? People standing standing firm, ready to continue in the Christian life and to move forward and to be used by God for the sake of his glory. And he says, basically, this gives me a new lease on life. As I see these people holding fast to the faith, it encourages me that the labor that I have done for the church hasn't been in vain. And it's exciting to him. When hard times come, and they will, right? There's only one thing that you can do. There's one and only one thing that you can do, ultimately. You can stand firm. Doesn't matter how much you tuck away. Doesn't matter how many people are around you. When you are hit dead center by that trial or that hard time as it comes, you either stand or you fall. And this text is encouraging you this morning to stand your ground. Hold fast. Continue. Plow forward for the sake of the Lord. Philip Yancey has rightly observed that pain is the gift nobody wants. But it is the gift that we need and must accept if we want to grow. I've concluded and I've thought about it before. If I had the power to remove pain from the Christian life, which I don't, just so you know. (laughs) Would I? And I've concluded that I would not for multiple reasons. The first is I have no idea what each individual person needs. Secondly, I, I have no understanding of how long they need to go through it. And thirdly, I don't understand what the end product would look like if I removed that circumstance from their life. There's only one who does. It's God. God has ordained hard times to make you and I grow into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He wants you to look like his son. And he's going to do this work in us over the course of our life while we are waiting for Jesus to come back. Let's pray.